0: If you have your Bible, go ahead and open up with us back to Revelation chapter one. Revelation chapter one, <coughs> and just—I uh, have to say this. My wife said I, I can't say this. I'm—I'm gonna—I'm gonna—I'm gonna go against what she said. This is risky. I could—I could face wrath when I get home. But but here's what I'm gonna get. Uh, Kelly and Leah made the meal tonight. And so, at least the vast majority of it. So, thank y'all so much for the work that y'all put into that. Also, Debbie Woodard. The Woodards as well. The Woodards as well contributed to this meal. And uh, let's give them a round of applause. <laughs> and. Um, we could do this all day. Last week, Kevin and Ruthie, uh, thank you for helping with the meal there, and uh, Wes and Holly uh, overseeing all of this week by week. So thank you, and, and we will, others will be serving in future weeks as well, but thank you so much for those who've been working to uh, put these together. They're, they're just wonderful. Um, Scott, can you pray for us with a handheld mic, and then, uh, and then and then we will jump in. You know, Greg, you may have to pray for it. Hang on, we yeah. got we got the green light.
1: Okay. Test
0: test. We'll we'll get Greg to pray yeah, and I'll then pray. we'll we'll try to fix the microphone.
1: Well, let's pray, Father. We are thankful, Lord, that you are so good. Uh, you provide so abundantly for us. Thank you for good uh, food tonight. Thank you for good fellowship. Um, and Lord, uh, we're thankful that Lord, as we've been learning in our Providence series, God, you are. Directing, even in uh, when technology doesn't work the way we want it to. Uh, but Lord, all of this is for our good and your glory. And so, Lord, as we dive into Revelation chapter 1 tonight, we pray for uh, just insight and wisdom. We pray for understanding. Lord, help all of us up here to be clear, help us be able to make sense of this. Um, and Lord, we pray we'd see our, our Savior more clearly, um, understand your word better. And again, Lord, as always, we'd be able to better walk with Christ and uh, make Him known uh, in the world around us because of our time together this evening. So, God, we just commit our hearts and our minds to You, have Your way by Your Spirit, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Greg, I, I'd also take a
0: moment, but could you read the whole first chapter? I, I just think it's great to hear it all together of yep. Revelation chapter 1.
1: Yeah, Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And in the midst of the lamp stands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like w- white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches." So if we can look at verse 9 here, and this is a good verse to sort of set up the whole book of
0: Revelation. Uh, Verse 9, let me read it again. I, John, so we believe this is the Apostle John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus. So if you look, I'm going to stand up again like I did last week. If you look here on the screen, uh, you'll remember the seven churches that Revelation was originally written to are right here. And this little island right here is the island of Patmos. And I read in a book, this was just, once once you hear this, you you can't forget it. It looks like a seahorse turned to the right forget that, can you? So let's zoom in here. So this is kind of from an aerial perspective. You can sort of see you've got, an, uh, you've got three big parts of the island with little isthmus that connect each of these parts. Uh, as, as, um, as church tradition says, if you look on top of the island, there's an actual cave here called the Cave of the Apocalypse. People claim that John received the, the revelation here. We have no idea if that's accurate. There's no way to know that. But at least somewhere on this island is where John was. And this next picture is taken from here, looking at this isthmus right here. So it's looking in this direction. Uh, modern day. And you can see here, the isthmus is right there. And they claim John was somewhere in this area when he got it. We we don't know that that's true. I would not bank anything really on that. But somewhere on this island is where John was positioned when, when he received this revelation. I show things like this to make one simple point. This happened in a real place. This is not uh, Narnia. This is not some sort of fairy tale place. This is a real, physical, tangible location. This is a place you can actually go and visit. And uh, next week with Ephesus, we're going to show some pictures, we, we hope, that, that will help that will, make that same point real as well. So John has been exiled here because of his faithfulness to the Word of God and to the testimony about Jesus. And I find this encouraging. Look, look again uh, in the middle of verse 9. He calls himself your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom, and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. John, first of all, is speaking very humbly here. He doesn't say, I'm an apostle. He doesn't claim, he could do that without being arrogant, but instead he says, I'm your brother. I'm your partner, and guess what we're partnering in? We got three things, and this is every Christian in all the world and all of time. There are three things, you ready? Number one, there's gonna be tribulation in this life. I am your partner in tribulation. Paul said, Acts 14, through many tribulations, we must inherit the kingdom of God. Sometimes you get this notion that if you're being faithful and you're trying truly by God's grace to follow Christ and you're trying to truly be obedient and fight sin, that your circumstances are just going to get happy-go-lucky and easy. And there's this idea, if, if my circumstances are not going in an easy way, I must have done something wrong. What, what am I failing to do wrong? God must be punishing me. The apostle John a man of great faithfulness in his old age and maturity. He is going through great tribulation in this prison island, right? And here he is, and he says, I, I, I'm walking through tribulation, but that doesn't mean we're, not, we're separated from the kingdom. The tribulation goes right with the kingdom and what else? The patient endurance that are in Jesus. So if we are in Christ, there's going to be tribulation attached to that. There's going to there's be the kingdom that's attached to that." and there's going to need to be patient endurance of those trials to make it to the end. Those who endure to the end will be saved. And in one sense, that's a summary of the whole book of what we're called to do in Revelation, right? Mm-hmm. Because of Jesus, we need to faithfully endure tribulation as we await the, the kingdom coming in its fullness in new creation. So in, in some sense, that's a little summary of how we are to live. Uh, thoughts on these opening uh, words? Yeah, I love that those who want
2: to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. That's just a guarantee. And uh, but I'm with you. I love his humility here. And the whole, and Mark said this well last week, but the whole book of Revelation is about Jesus. And John makes sure not to say, okay, I'm John, you need to get my other four books. They're really good. You need to go back <laughs> to the book table. You need to, you know, and go on and on. And I'm the apostle and you ought to do this and that. But man, just his humility. And then immediately to Jesus, uh, and so you have to love the way... Uh, and maybe that happens when you're 90, you know, that you grow to have that kind of humility when he's writing this, but uh, it's, a, it's a great way to start.
3: Yeah, I'll just piggyback on that and just say the same thing. His humility is what, what struck me too. Is like somebody said he could be the last person alive who walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus. I mean, possibly. He was in his 90s, and yet he says, I'm your brother, partner in, in tribulation. So yeah, see his humility there. Second thing I would say is like, he's not off in his mansion, kicking up his feet, relaxing. Now, like one commentator just said, he writes to the churches as one who has paid the price of exile for his faithfulness in proclaiming the word of God. So it's just like, what a comfort that would be. Some, this church, these churches are going through suffering, and here's a guy who's no stranger to suffering. He's actually exiled on this island because of his faith, faithfulness. It's sort of like I thought if, if there was a kid who was a Christian playing high school basketball this year, he's 17, and he broke his neck and he's in the hospital and he wants to see somebody. Does he want to see me, or does he want to see this guy at the end? He wants to see this guy at the end because he can relate with him with what he's going through. So that certainly this would be an encouragement to them to have John there. But then secondly, and one pastor just said, Jesus was so real and so precious to John that he would rather be exiled to a barren island than not to talk about Christ. I mean, that's just beautiful. He'd rather, I, you can exile me, I'm not gonna stop talking about Christ. He wants to be faithful. And it just reminded me of a story of a sermon my dad preached years ago uh, of, a, of this godly couple, Larry and Pat Whitehouse, they were with the Navigators for years and years. Pat's still living, she's in a retirement home, just a godly, godly woman, uh, woman of prayer. Uh, but Larry was just, he would just invest in, in people at UGA and he had a heart for international students and so he would talk to them about Jesus all the time but he would get in trouble. We're talking about Jesus all the time. They would—they would—they would. They would, they would, they would get him in trouble, threaten him, and all this stuff. My dad was talking to him one time. I was like, Larry, like, why do you keep doing this? Why do you keep talking about Jesus? And Larry just said, you know, I can't. I can't stop mm-hmm. talking about Jesus. I, I'm not going to stop talking about Jesus. John couldn't stop. They can exile me. I'm just
1: going to keep talking about Jesus and that's how we should be. I, I got to keep talking about, about my Savior. I love the fact that you guys are drawing attention to your brother and partner in these things. You know, the, the whole um, division between like the clergy and the laity. Um, is unfortunate in some ways. I mean, obviously God equips certain people for teaching and leading and stuff like that. But these two like classes of individuals, you've got like, you've got pastors, clergy, and then you've got everybody else. Like it it goes against what you see in the New Testament. I mean, even Peter talks about when he's writing, writing first, Peter, you know, I exhort you as a fellow elder. He doesn't say as an apostle, he says as a fellow elder. Um, And so that, that whole distinction of, well, you've got like the those who do ministry, official ministry like way up here and you've got the average everyday folks down here. It's like we don't have any more access to Jesus than you do. Like this is one of like the fundamental things Reformation brought out, the whole priesthood of all believers. Like through Christ, we all have the same access to God. Like we might be gifted to to be able to understand and explain scripture better. But that doesn't mean we have a closer access to God. And then if you're in the presence of a pastor that somehow you're closer to God because you're with a pastor and when you leave the pastor, you know, and it, you know, it's, it's not wrong to have a respect for the position, but you know, people act weird when they get around preachers sometimes because they have this, this cultural mindset that says, well, I'm in some kind of holy ground right now because I'm in the presence of a, of a pastor and, and they were, I've had it to me and it's just, it's just weird. And people like, the, the, oh, oh, we can't say anything. You know, he's a pastor. We, it's like, we forget we're human beings too. I mean, John, I'm sorry, you know, apparently he, he never got that message. But it's like, um, we all have the same access to God. We all have the same Bible. That's why we say, bring your Bible and read this. Check what we're saying by what's written. Um, just because we're up here doesn't mean we're like inerrant or infallible. Um, and so I love the emphasis that John gives there. Your brother and partner. He's like I'm right there with you in this. We're we're arm in arm. Uh, we're side by side. We're in this together. And I and I hope by God's grace that's how we always are in this. Never like saying well because I'm an elder at North Avenue, you know, you know whatever. That's just ridiculous. Um, and just anyone who talks that way should not <laughs> should not be. <laughs> no, we shouldn't <laughs> teaching anything. But
0: uh, look at Revelation chapter one. Look at verse six. And this goes right with that. Uh, It talks about, end of verse five, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us, this is all God's people, made us a kingdom and priests to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. And we got, we had to skip over this last week for time, but this is tremendous truth. This is, the the reformers call this the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. This is every single one of us uh, is in God's kingdom. Every single one of us is a priest. And you say, that sounds strange. What, what, What does that mean? Priests were the people who had direct access to God in the temple, access that no one else had. The high priest went into the Holy of Holies once a year, and only the high priest had that kind of access into God's immediate presence. Christ has torn the veil, hasn't he, to the Holy of Holies. When he died, the earthquake tore that veil in half, and that huge curtain was torn, and that was God saying, every single person who's in Christ can come immediately into my presence. In fact, I'm gonna dwell in you through my spirit. And you don't have to be a high priest in the line of Aaron. You just have to be in Christ. And if you're in Christ, you have direct access to God. And so that's an amazing truth. All of us have that. There's no Christian who has more or less availability of God's presence. We all have it and we are meant, priests were meant, to convey this to others and to invite people into it. And so I think that is an incredibly encouraging aspect of what we, what we see here.
2: And we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but we have one in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Back to Jesus being the center.
0: Yes. So let's, let's look here at verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. We believe that's Sunday. Okay, that's, that's the Lord's Day, Sunday. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna uh, and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now let's just pause here. One writer said, John is essentially in jail. And yet, you know, most people, sometimes if you have a, if you work uh, in in, in school, uh, sometimes in the summer, you forget what day it is, right? You're like, it's today, Tuesday or Wednesday. Sometimes you lose track. It's already happening. It's already happening. John was basically in island prison here. Okay. And I know there are worse prisons in the world than this island. I understand that, but still he's in prison. And here's what John says. He knows what day of the week it is. It's Sunday. It's the Lord's day, and he's in the spirit of the Lord's day. He has this encounter with with Christ in this vision on the Lord's day, and he is told to write this letter to the seven churches. What we're about to see here, though, is an amazing description of Jesus in his glorified state. So the meat of tonight's text is what's coming right now, and it's not about John. In fact, it's not about you and me, really. This is a glorified picture of Jesus. He is coming in radiance and splendor. Remember, on his time on earth, he came in humility and meekness, and he's still humble in the sense that he receives sinners. He hasn't changed his character, but he is now in a glorified state. Remember on the Mount of Transfiguration? John was also there, remember? The same John with Peter and James, and they go up on the mountain, not long before Jesus' death, and Jesus essentially says, let me just give you a glimpse of my divinity, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became shining bright white, and the, John was one of them. They fall down terrified, and Jesus says, "Don't be afraid." Puts his hand on them, and we're going to see a similar thing here. But what, what are we? We're glimpsing the glory of Jesus. And let, let's can we begin? Just we're gonna take this slowly, piece by piece. There's a lot to see here. Uh, Scott, can you read for us uh, 12 and 13, and we'll t- we'll break these down a little bit.
3: Verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. Fourteen as well. Mm -hmm. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Yeah, we can stop there.
0: I'll start with the son of man, and then we can move through this. When John turns and sees Jesus... He sees someone who is truly human, while at the same time truly divine. And it just strikes me, the true humanity of Jesus is an astonishing thing. Jesus is, not just was, truly human. You understand this? This is so important. I remember I had a student ask me a year or two ago, she, like, it was almost like it dawned on the, my student, I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, so one of my students said, so Jesus is still a human being right now. It was like the, 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 the freshness of it got me excited. You know, I, I thought, you know, to me, it's like, yeah, we know that, but, but to see my student, he's a human still right now, he's resurrected a human now. I mean, think about what that means about his tenderness, about his love, his knowledge of us, his sympathy for suffering, struggling sinners and saints and those who need help. He, he knows what it's like, he has grace for us. So he, he sees the humanity of Jesus on full display, the son of man, and he, he knows the graciousness of Christ. What else do we see in these verses?
3: And I can just say at the outset, in terms of, I think, just getting the the overall impression of the whole thing. Like, you could get caught up in d- different aspects of it, but I think one guy just said, the overall impression is the main point. John wants us to see and feel the glory and splendor and majesty of the Son of God, and again, the Son of Man. I'm just thinking, they're going through tribulation, these churches. And certainly, it's going to be encouraging to hear John talk about that he's, he's been exiled for his faithfulness. But what do you want to see when you're going through tribulation? You need a vision of the Son of Man. You need to see the glory of Jesus on display to help us persevere. And it just, I have to read this from, from Acts chapter 7. It just reminded me of Stephen, same, same kind of thing. But let me just read from Acts 7, uh, verses 54 and following. It just says, and now when they heard these things, they were enraged. Remember, after he preached this powerful sermon, they're enraged. He can't even finish it. And they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. So he looks up and he gets this incredible vision. He sees the Son of Man, that's what he says. And what happens? They cried out with a loud voice, their, stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. So, this this vision of the Son of Man certainly helped Stephen persevere to the end and and be faithful. And certainly, this vision here in Revelation, I think, is going to help these churches to be faithful. I mean, it's just an awesome vision. uh, Yeah, just to say at the outset.
1: Well, who's the Son of Man? I mean, that's an important question. I Mm -hmm. mean, Ezekiel, you know, he's he's called that as a prophet uh, multiple times. But I think we have to go um, even deeper than that. Daniel chapter 7. Can we turn there? Yeah, Daniel chapter 7. Let's look at verses uh, 13 and 14. Hold your place there because there's some other other things we want to look at in Daniel 7. Uh, but the Son of Man is not just... It does refer to him in his humanity, but it's not just like, oh, Son of God, that means that's his divine nature. Son of Man, that's his human nature. Son of Man, that phrase, from what we're going to see in the book of Daniel, it's it's imbued with a whole lot more than just, oh, Jesus is a, is a person like us. Um, and so Daniel chapter 7... Uh, let's read verses 13 and 14, You know, I'll, I'll mention quickly, like this is a, Daniel's vision of these these four beasts, and then he sees the throne of God, which we're gonna read in just a second. Um, and so you've got this amazing heavenly court uh, with God and, and countless angels and all kinds of crazy stuff going on. And then he says this, verse 13, "'I saw in the night visions, "'and behold, with the clouds of heaven, "'there came one like a son of man. "'And he came to the Ancient of Days.'" and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so John's readers and we ourselves need to be in the mindset of Daniel chapter seven. This son of man, whoever he is when he comes, uh, he's going to be given a kingdom. <clears throat> he's going to be given authority. He's going to rule. He's going to reign. None can challenge him. And we've already seen here in Revelation that Jesus is the ruler of kings on earth. He's made us to be a kingdom, priest who is God and father. And John says, you know, I'm a partner with you in this kingdom that's in Jesus. <clears throat> and so we have to connect what we're seeing here to this figure in Daniel chapter 7, this coming um this coming individual to whom god is going to give all the the kingdom and authority and power and dominion that there is to give <clears throat> and all nations will serve him yes, which is all nations yeah pretty and, amazing and so what's interesting i mean this i'm not i don't want to get too far off on this but it's like the great commission we are taking the gospel to all nations and so as more and more people come to know jesus those nations that are supposed to be serving, like that's what's happening when people come to know Jesus, that people's nations and languages are serving Him. Now, obviously we're looking for the final fulfillment of this one day, but when John says, I saw one like a son of man, that's what we need to think about. This guy that God is giving all authority in the kingdom and everything to. All right, you can hold your spot in Daniel 7. We may
0: come back to that in a moment, but turn uh, back to Revelation 1. And this also, if you're like me, you can read through a a section like this so quickly that the individual pieces of information just go straight over my head. I, I don't stop to really consider what they mean. Here's one that is just so encouraging. Let's look, I'm reading it again. Chapter one of Revelation, verse 12. When John turns to see this loud voice like a trumpet, verse 12, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw... The first thing he sees is what? Seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, Revelation has some strange symbolism in it, right? We talked about some of those last week. This one, you don't have to wonder at all what this symbol means because Revelation tells you. And I know, we wish Revelation told us what every symbol meant, it doesn't do that. We have to figure it out using the Old Testament and some wisdom, but on this one, there's no question what the lampstands represent. Let's skip to the end of the chapter. Verse twenty, as for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Don't you like that when you have the key to help you out there? Mm-hmm. So the lampstands are symbols for seven local churches. The seven lampstands, uh, the, the, the seven, uh, the seven lampstands, golden lampstands, represent these seven churches here on the map. Now let's go back and look at it again. When John turns to see the exalted Jesus, he sees Jesus where he's in the midst of the lampstands and someone was talking about this. He could have been detached and far off. He's got other things to worry about. He's God, right? He's got other things to think about. Where does Jesus choose to dwell in this vision? He dwells amongst his people on earth. Where's Jesus? He could be anywhere, being worshiped by angels, which he is. He could be off doing whatever he wants. Where does Jesus choose to be? Walking amongst his people. He has not gone to heaven and forgotten about you and me. I know we don't say this. We would never say this doctrinally. But in our emotions, sometimes we can feel like when Jesus was on earth, I could relate to him. I could walk up to him. Like you talked about the guy with leprosy. And you could walk up to him and go to his feet and talk to him. And he he was right there. He could look you in the eye and he cared about people because he was here. But... He was was resurrected, he was glorified, exalted, ascended. He's now at the right hand of the Father. He's got bigger fish to fry. He's got other things to deal with. He doesn't care as much about us anymore. Now, we wouldn't say it, but sometimes you feel that way. Like he's up there doing something else, right? But no, when John sees the glorified Jesus, Jesus is dwelling where his heart is, which is with his people. He's walking amongst the people, and he's also observing what's going on amongst his people, and he cares about everything going on. For good and for bad, we will see in these next couple chapters, he, knows, he notices the good and he encourages them. He notices the bad and he exhorts and corrects them and urges repentance. But the Lord is not indifferent to his people. He cares intimately about his church. I mean, North Avenue is a, we're, we're a small little fish in a pond, right? We're not a, big, we're not a big church. We're not some mega church or anything like that. Humble little church here. Jesus walks amongst this church. He knows what's going on in this church. That's wonderfully encouraging and also somewhat fearful, isn't it? He, he knows. He observes. His eyes are on us. Even right now, Jesus, the glorified Jesus, is intimately aware of all of our lives. He knows our minds, our thoughts, our hearts. He knows our struggles. He knows our sins. He knows our triumphs. He knows all of it, and He's here to help us in it. And that's a glimpse of what John is,
3: is seeing here. Thoughts on that? Yeah, just a couple quotes on that, just piggybacking on that. Uh, one guy just said, the fact that Christ stands in the midst of the lampstands means He is not aloof from His people. He is deeply involved in their situation, superintending and guiding them. Another guy just said he is vitally present with the churches and knows their state and has not abandoned them in their trials. Another pastor just said he moves among his lampstands, trimming the wicks and carving wax, breathing life back into flickering flames. I mean, that is just moving uh, again that he's here. And again, I, like Kelly didn't want you to say this, but Jesus knows the sacrificial love that went into this meal. He knows the service, the time, the love for the people of God that they did for this meal. He will reward them. He sees that and watches that. He knows the encouraging comment that someone makes that no one else knows about, but you received. He knows the deepest struggles and pain that you're going through. He he sees and knows. Uh, He knows the sin issues, and he's going to carve and help you grow. I mean, just such an encouragement. And a verse that we, I'm I'm sure I've rushed past that verse and not thought about it, but he is amongst us. (laughs) And this little church here that is just incredibly encouraging. Okay, I just want to add to that. So, so
0: just just I don't want to spoil the future weeks and what we want to talk about, but just look at just a couple of verses here. Remember, the next two chapters cover all seven churches on the screen here. And just let me just show you how each one starts. Just real quick, chapter two of Revelation, verse two to Ephesus. Look how he starts. I know your works. You see this? He's amongst the lampstands. Your toil and your patient endurance. Look at two eight, excuse me, two nine. I know, talking to Smyrna, I know your tribulation, your, your suffering, I know I know about it, and your poverty, but you are rich. Look at verse 13, to the church at Pergamum. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name. You have not den- denied my faith. He's, he's watching the faithfulness. Look at verse 19, to the church at Thyatira. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed your first. Chapter 3, verse Middle of verse one, church at Sardis, I know your works. This one's a warning. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. And then he warns them. Three, verse eight, to the church at Philadelphia. I know your works, and I've set before you an open door. Look at verse 15 at Laodicea. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot, etc. Do you see, he's walking amongst us He's observing what's going on and he knows our works. Again, that's both encouraging and fearful depending on how our works are, how our, whether we're being faithful or not. But the Lord knows and he is observing what's going on.
2: And, that, and not only that, he's interceding for us. You know, he's not just watching, but he's interceding continually because he cares and he's not leaving us on our own as the Holy Spirit does in Romans 8. And so there's uh, you, you just have to love the his closeness to his people, and I hope we leave encouraged
0: tonight, knowing we are not uh tackling this one on our own well Jerry, let me ask you on that. that that you need to say more uh when when you say Jesus is interceding for us, explain a little bit more why that is a comfort for the believer oh, I just think. And, and this is a good feast in, in
2: Romans 8 from verse 26 to 32, really. But just that idea, and maybe it'd be worth turning there. It's always yeah. worth turning to Romans 8. <laughs> um, this is a great passage. Um, Scott, do you mind reading that? Romans eight twenty six 26, uh, maybe all the way to 32. And I know there's a lot to get to on the rest
3: of this, but maybe this is too good to miss out on. Okay, Romans 8, starting in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God.
2: Let me interrupt you one second. Those intercession, again, the Holy Spirit in 26 and 27, he's interceding for when we don't know what to pray. So he's not just that. God, Jesus doesn't just know our works. He is constantly interceding. And that is 24-7. And when we're, it doesn't be like He starts interceding when we start praying. He intercedes when we don't know how to pray or when we don't know what we're doing, which is continually.
3: Okay, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Oh,
2: that's too good to miss, too. Look at where in 28, he's turning all things together. It's working all things together for good because of that. If he's interceding for us all the time, how can't it work together for good? God always answers yes when the Holy Spirit intercedes. So he intercedes. God answers yes. It's always working together for our good, which isn't comfort or fun. But in verse 29, like Scott read, it is being conformed to the image of Christ. That's what's truly good. And then it finishes so gloriously,
3: Scott. Yeah. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously Give us all things yeah
2: and there's all things ends in all things 28 was all things we're not missing out on anything which again i think goes back to this passage that we just looked at and then in verse 34 who is to condemn christ jesus is the one who died more than that who is raised and what is he doing is at the right hand of god who indeed is interceding for us verse 31 god's for us who can be against this nobody can Jesus and the Holy Spirit are constantly interceding for us, which I think just adds flavor to this already uh, beautiful picture here in Romans 1, uh, Revelation 1.
3: I think Alan McCannon one time said that, your editor could roll out of bed and teach Romans, I think is what he said one time. <laughs> That's
0: proof of it right there. So back to Revelation chapter 1. We'll pick up here at the end, uh, middle of verse 13. So, in the midst of the lampstands, verse 13, one like a son of man, again, Daniel is the most clear reference point here, uh, clothed with a long robe and a golden sash around his chest. People said that this word for long robe is most likely referring to the priest in the Old Testament. It's the same Greek word for that for that robe. So th- he's showing his priestly ministry, which includes interceding and caring for us. Verse 14, the hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire.
1: Yeah, I'll, I'll take that one. Um. I'm gonna focus on verse 14, um, because there's a lot in the way he's clothed. But when we talked about uh, earlier, like Revelation oftentimes will like mix metaphors. Um, it, it'll it'll take things that naturally don't go together and bring them together. Um, and, and again, Revelation is not something that you try to draw. It's, it's um, John saw this and then he wrote it. Um, and what that seeing was like, I don't absolutely know. I don't know if any of us can really know. Um, and, and several several guys I was looking at listening to uh, preparing for this, they, they made the same comment, and I thought about this, and I think it's right. Revelation is not showing us right here what Jesus actually looks like. It's showing us what he is like. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the images we get of him are, are, are telling us something about him. It's not that we're supposed to try to draw what we see what what we're reading the, the image it puts in our head it's it's supposed to show us what he's actually like what his character is like. So that's so good because it, the text keeps saying one
0: like a son of man. And it says his, his hair was like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like bronze, burnished bronze, etc. cetera. These are not it's, not, it's not literally bronze. It's not literally white. He's saying like, like, like. So John's reaching for language to describe what is really beyond language.
1: Yeah, and so the, the mixed metaphor here is we've got the son of man, who obviously back in Daniel 7, if you still have your place there, he's distinct from God. Um, but also we we start to see that He's distinct from God, but He is God. Because look at verse uh, Daniel chapter seven, verse nine. Okay, again, this is as Mark mentioned. Like, if you really want to do Revelation, you've really got to know your Old Testament. Um, and and we're only scratching the surface of this. I think there's actually I've heard it said. I haven't tested this, but there's like more allusions to the to the Old Testament in Revelation than there are verses. Um, like it is so steeped in Old Testament imagery and ideas and teaching. Here's one place, verse nine. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the ancient of days, that's God, took his seat. And look look at the imagery here. His clothing was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were open. So we, we, we take that image here of, of white hair, this, this purity, this white wool like thing. And what do we read about the one who is the son of man? He's also being identified with the ancient of days. John is unequivocally unequivocally, I think it's made a word up there, um, unequivocally, unashamedly saying that Jesus is God because he's taking the son of man image from Daniel and he's pairing that with the ancient of days. Because again, the hairs of his head were white, like wool, like snow. That's only been said of God. And so for John to apply that to Jesus is one of the clearest declarations you can get that Jesus, who is the son of God, is also truly and fully God in himself. Um, and you think about the white hair here. Uh, I think it was Carson I heard talking about this and actually it, it made me chuckle a little bit, but it, it was really on point. Um, you know, we think as we get older, our for most of us anyway, our hair starts lightening and graying and getting white and you, you find somebody, you know, up there, like you know, Papa Fred. Um, <laughs> we had to mention you, um, and it's you're like, okay, but there's there's age, there's <laughs> he's hiding he's now. the Bible on his head. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, there's age, there's wisdom. But you know, typically we think as as our hair is gray, our bodies weaken. Like, and as we get older, you know, you, you know, like our eyes grow dim. So here's the thing: we see someone who as is, is more ancient than anything but we don't see this ancient one decaying, um, diminishing, uh, wearing down. We see someone in the fullness of strength. I mean, what is, think about the image. His eyes were like a flame of fire. Here is one who is untouched by time. Untouched by time. Yes, he is old, but he doesn't look old. He does and he doesn't at the same time. He, he might have white hair, but you don't see a wrinkle. You see someone in full strength. Um, and that is our Jesus, that is our God. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And obviously I think it means more than that. But at the very least, we see someone who time, age, um, growing old, never, hinders in any way.
0: Let, let me just jump off that. So th- his eyes were like a flame of fire. That's verse 14. You, you know this verse, but turn with me to Hebrews to your left. Book of Hebrews to your left, chapter 4. I think this is getting at the idea of what it means that his eyes are like a flame of fire. So this is Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Pause there. Does Jesus have a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth in this chapter? Yes, so his word is all powerful. It is the word of God. When Jesus speaks, things happen. When he says, let there be light, I know the father said that, he worked through the son. When God says, let there be light, things happen. Creation obeys. When Jesus says, peace be still, Storm stop, his word is powerful. So sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, it cuts right through us, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight. His eyes are like a flame of fire, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I, I wanna say this, right now in this moment, Jesus, when he looks at you, he sees straight through like x-ray, right? He can see all that's going on within you, all that's going on in your time alone, in your own heart, in your imagination. Jesus can read it like a book. He he is fully aware of everything, every thought, every word, every deed in your life right now. Now, I want to say, is there unrepentant sin going on in your life right now tonight? Is there a thing in your life, you know it is wrong and sinful, but in this moment in your heart, you're clutching onto it. It might be something silly seemingly and small, but is it something that's keeping you distant from really communing with God because you want something he does not want you to have and you want it deeply and quietly in your heart. Listen, right now, Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. No one can hide. Everyone is naked and hidden, uh, is not hidden, but naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we was given account. Right now, Jesus will offer you full forgiveness and restoration, but are you willing to let go of that thing? Will you let go of what's blocking fellowship with God, throw it away, the sins that so easily entangle, throw it, throw it to the side and embrace Christ. You're not tricking him, I'm not fooling him. He, he sees, he knows and he is offering absolute fellowship with him and joy and intimacy with him. But do we want it more than we want these other things? And so there's a call here throughout Revelation, too, of repentance. Repent, turn, and, and have and I you, you open the door and I will come in and dine with you and you with me. That, that, that fellowship is, is, is on the table. Thought, thoughts on his
1: ability to see through us? Well, we you can fool anybody and everybody but Jesus. He's the one person you can't fool. I tell my students that it's like, you know, you might be able to get something by your teacher, but Jesus is never fooled by anything. Um and I just think that's, that's important to remember. Like, it's a simple truth, but we should remind ourselves of that. Like, I, like if you turn the lights off, Jesus still sees fine. You know, we, we have to have lights to see. Jesus doesn't need like physical lights. He sees all, uh, regardless of whether it's night or day, light or dark, um, nothing can be hidden from him. Not one thing. And again, like there's comfort in that. There's a, there should, it should make us be a little fearful. Um, because it's like, oh, wow, like there's nowhere I can go where I can sin in peace, ultimately. Um, And we should, you know, remember that. But there's also comfort in that. It's like, he sees us, he knows, like you said, he knows us, and he's willing to forgive us, show us grace, show us love, show us mercy, as we come back to him repentantly, um, confessing sin, forsaking sin, being broken over our sin. Like, he knows all that, and he doesn't, shun us or push us away.
3: I'd just say one of one the things, just piggybacking what Mark, what you just said in terms of if you're clinging on to some sin, Jesus knows it. But I would just say, Robert Murray McShane said, every, every sin is, all, is something away from my greatest enjoyment. Every sin is something away from my greatest enjoyment. Meaning that sin promises joy. It's going to bring bitterness. But if you turn to Jesus, the one who knows all anyway, he will bring joy, satisfaction, rest. So, I mean, there's no point in clinging on to it. It's not going to satisfy you. Jesus will satisfy. And yeah.
0: Let's go back to Revelation 1 and let's continue here. Start back in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire, verse 15. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. I mean, we, don't, we may not have time to go through all of that, but I'll at least say this. Jesus is radiantly glorious with the glory of God, right? Second Corinthians, Paul says, he speaks of the the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So the light of God's glory shines out of the face of Jesus. And let's look at John's reaction here. Now, before I read it, you probably know the reaction, but let me just say this. You you do remember John is the beloved disciple Mm. from the gospel of John. Remember at the Last Supper, He lays his head right next to Jesus. These are intimate, close friends. Uh, They've known each other for years. He's called the beloved disciple. This is incredible close. He was in the inner three, right? In the inner three, Peter, James, and John, right? So you think when John sees his friend, who he hasn't seen in 60 years, about, right? It's been about 60 years since Jesus' death and resurrection, it's 95 AD. You think when he sees Jesus, he's gonna be, ah, you know, my friend's back. He sees the glorified Jesus. Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Thoughts on how in the Bible, when people encounter God in his glory, they, they react very differently than sometimes how American Christianity presents Jesus as your best friend or something along those lines. Yeah,
2: could Isaiah six says a similar thing, um, and this is verse five. Remember Isaiah? And, and I said, "When he saw again, the glory of God, and I said, "Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king." the Lord of hosts. So we sometimes think, oh, if I saw Jesus, I would want to ask him questions or whatever. No, I think we would just be as though dead, just as these great men are. What would we be like? We would be, our sin would be so um, apparent and uh, and and we would see that uh, as unclean lips. But then Jesus, and we'll get here, is so um, compassionate in his response to that. You know, in Isaiah, the coal cleaned him up so that he was able to say, who will go for me? And Isaac can say, here am I, send me. And so, you know, right after that, there's that commissioning. So, uh, boy, it's it's, um, convicting here and certainly daunting, but very encouraging that God still wants to use us even despite that sense.
3: Yeah, I mean, I would just say, one guy just said, if you've never felt your unworthiness and sin in the presence of Christ, you've never seen Him at all. And I just think that it's poverty of spirit. It's like the beginning of conversion. You see Him in His glory. I mean, I just remember reading Jonathan Edwards' sermons. Uh, I don't know if I became a Christian reading Edwards, but I think I maybe did. And, and just the the picture of God that Edwards was painting, just awesome in holiness and might, and eternity was before me. I mean, I was just shaken up because of my, my sin rose up to the surface of my life, and you're just undone when you see when you see Jesus in His majesty, uh, he's awesome in power and in holiness, and you are just, you, you just feel your sin and your unworthiness and all you can do is fall at his feet. And then another guy just said, First, though John is overwhelmed by the glorified Christ, his response is different from that of an unbeliever. In Gethsemane, the enemies of Jesus fell backward in terror when Jesus declared his glory as I am, John eighteen six. By contrast, John falls toward his Lord. He falls down at his feet.
1: Enemies fall away from Christ, but his fe- people fall toward him. I just thought it mm. beautiful. We want to fall toward him. Yeah. It's also true in Scripture when God shows up, people... Fall down. Fall down in fear, fall down in abject humility um, and humiliation because of our sin and His holiness. Um, You know, I I mentioned, you know, a, a false teaching, you know, on like healing. Another one has to do with like people in charismatic churches. Some will say you have to like be slain in the spirit. So like they would say, oh, see, John was slain in the spirit. He fell down dead, like dead. But see, here's the difference. Slain in the spirit is like this kind of ecstatic experience that people have in these churches where like they're in this euphoric state, everything like that. Number one, John was in fear. He wasn't euphoric. Um, he was in his right mind. He knew exactly what was going on. He wasn't out of his mind like all these people claim happen in those moments. Um, he's, he, he's in fear. He, he is in his right mind um, because he's able to comprehend what Jesus does in response. I mean, he comes, he puts his, hand, his right hand on him and says, fear not, meaning what was John probably feeling? Fear, as we all would, rightly so. But when, when God shows up, people fall down, but it's not in the crazy way some churches practice and they say, this is what you should expect. Um, no, like Moses at the burning bush, um, God, God reveals himself, take off your, your sandals, you're standing on holy ground. Moses, he took them off and he didn't wanna look at God. He was afraid to look at God. Um, that happens numerous times in the Old Testament. People know if God shows up, we could die. It's not this, oh, this weird, shaking, euphoric experience. It's, it's the utter, you know, quoting from Isaiah, it undoes us, it ruins us, it humbles us, it casts <clears throat> us down and the only way we get back up is if God says, hey, fear not. And like Jesus does to John here. So in, in our worship, in our expectation of how God moves, Like our first expectation should not be people going crazy when God shows up. Um, That's just not what we see in scripture. When God shows up and meets sinful human beings, even believers, we fall down in fear in worship in reverence and in awe. And we don't get up in that sense until God tells us to. We're almost out of time for this part.
0: Uh, Let me just wind up with some thoughts here. Uh, going back to this one more time, John falls at his feet as though dead. So just stop here. This story could have ended very differently. And that's what we sometimes miss. So had John sinned, oh my goodness, John had sinned just like any of us throughout his life, many sins. That's why he falls down in abject humility. He knows who he's dealing with. And he falls on his face as though dead. And Jesus could have said, "Um, John, my eyes, I, I know everything. I know all your sins, John. I know everything you've ever done wrong. I've got this double-edged sword coming out of my mouth that can bring judgment. I can speak, and you can be obliterated. Instead, Jesus reaches out with his right hand. He places it gently on John's shoulder, and he says, don't be afraid. And you say, how is that possible? You've got God touching a sinner. (laughs) How could you say, don't be afraid? It's like, Someone's, you know, a convict gets caught and you hear, don't be afraid. What are you talking about? Don't be afraid. Well, here's the next word. This is why it's so crucial. Verse 17, middle of the verse. He laid his right hand on me saying, fear not, why? I am the first and the last and the living one. Here it is, I died. And behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. So write down what you need to write down. Jesus says, listen, John, I died for sinners, I rose to the dead, I'm never gonna die again. In fact, I'm so triumphant over death in the grave that I have the keys of access to death. So no one goes to the grave apart from permission from Jesus, and no one gets out of the grave without direct permission from Jesus, and resurrection only happens under the immediate command of Jesus. John chapter five, I believe it is, says the day is coming when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live because Jesus is going to speak, and all who've ever known Christ and been converted and been trusting in Christ, they will all come out of the grave. They will come out of the place of the dead. They will, they will be resurrected to new life, and they will triumph with Christ forever because we're united to the one who is resurrected never to die again. And, and that's where our hope is. That's, that's where we rest, and, and that's, where we, that's where we have all of our, all of our hope. Um, any last thought, and then we'll close in prayer? Scott, can you pray for us? Sure.
3: Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful uh, again for nights like these where we can gather as a church family and uh, enjoy a meal and have fellowship around the tables, and then we can open up Your Word and read from Your Word and discuss Your Word. And uh, what a passage tonight. Uh, Father, I I pray that we have seen the glory of Jesus on display in this passage. Uh, Powerfully it is on display here, Uh, His Majesty certainly, but certainly we see His mercy on display. I mean, you you see this awesome picture of Jesus, eyes flaming fire, and then he says that he he died. I mean, just the absolute amazing humility and the sufferings of Jesus on display and the fact that he can touch John, sinner though he is, and say, fear not. I mean, just absolutely incredible. So I pray we'd be stirred by this passage. And I pray uh, even now as we sing that you'd be honored. And I pray that our time discussing these questions would be edifying and fruitful. Uh, and we pray this in Jesus' name.
1: Amen.